On Friday, you may have seen that the Supreme Court upheld SB 8, the Texas ban on abortions. Not officially overturning Roe versus Wade, the court case legalizing abortion, but certainly sinking its future. On December 1st, Middle, you sent me to the steps of the Supreme Court to bear witness as arguments were heard to overturn Roe. For much of the day, I stood side by side with anti-choicers, people who also traveled to the steps of SCOTUS, but who came professing faith in a very different God than I. There's a picture of me standing with my Jesus collar right beside another white woman holding a large picture of Jesus, but her with anti-choice messaging. Two people side by side, both claiming Jesus, both somehow coming to completely different understandings of how our faith informs reproductive rights. The day before, on November 30th, a 15-year-old child who had access to a semi-automatic handgun opened fire at a school in Michigan where our own Darren Johnson went to school, killing four students, wounding many others. Between 2009 and 2018, we have had 57 times more school shootings than other major industrialized nations combined. And this year, there were more deaths on school grounds than any other back-to-school time on record. Over the past week, you've likely seen elected officials and their families posting with, you know where I'm going, large rifles surrounding Christmas trees, some even asking for ammunition from Santa. Two families, only a return label apart. One holding guns, smiling. The other holding the grief of a child lost to gun violence, both claiming Jesus, both somehow coming to completely different understandings of how our faith informs the Second Amendment. So we jumped right in today, didn't we? <laughs> Preaching from the Bible in one hand and the newspaper in the other as Karl Barth says. And as such, we would do well to stop and ask a few questions here. First of all, how is it that people come to completely different understandings of how our faith informs our politics? Why is it that white evangelicals are overwhelmingly statistically anti-choice and simultaneously pro-gun? Secondly, what, if anything, do our holy texts have to say about this? And finally, as Dr. King would ask, where do we go from here? Now I am going to attempt to answer all three of these bullet points today, and this will be my first and likely last bulleted sermon for Middle Church. But to give some insight into the first question, we need to go all the way back, don't we? All the way back to 1619, but we don't have that much time today, so we're gonna start in the 1970s. But before we do, you may have noticed that I'm using the phrase anti-abortion and anti-choice rather than pro-life. I've been taught by many others, and I've stopped saying pro-life because that phrase is such a farce. And I encourage you to do the same. We need to understand that there have been decades of coordinated 
attempts to define what is understood as moral and Christian in this country. The new Christian right, or the moral majority, formed by capitalizing on conservative backlash against liberal gains of the 1960s, focusing on absolute obedience to God's laws as the solution to moral decay. The National Rifle Association mirrored this by casting the Second Amendment as a God-given right. Gun ownership offered a sense of moral purpose to white males who have lost or have fear of losing their economic footing. You do know that white men today are the most likely to be gun owners and that white evangelicals are more likely than members of any other faith or of the average citizen to own a gun. I'd say they've been successful. As for the anti-choice movement, there was something else threatening, as Bell Hooks calls it, the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy. You all, we have to understand that evangelicals seized on abortion not for moral reasons, but as a racially coded attack to keep schools segregated. Bob Jones University's loss of IRS status on the grounds of racially discriminatory practices made the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy lose their you-know-what. Oh, hell no, the white men said. We can't lose our control. We can't lose our power. We can't lose this illusion of greatness that whiteness purports. So what can we do? What can we organize with? How can we build a movement? Unborn babies were the tool they manipulatively chose as the means to their end. Unborn babies are a lot more palatable than being openly racist. Now, notably, prior to 1979, evangelicals were indifferent to the reproductive justice conversation. In fact, many were pro-abortion. A 1968 evangelical symposium refused to characterize abortion as sinful. And in 1971, Southern Baptists passed a bill to work for legislation that would allow abortions to continue under certain, certain, certain conditions. That is some brilliant marketing by straight white Christian men seeking power. Gun rights and protecting unborn babies became synonymous with morally good, ensuring continued control of the patriarchy's puppets, as our own Achebe says. And this harmful marriage continues today, with me and my pro-abortion caller standing right beside large anti-choice white Jesus, and with representatives Thomas Massey and Lauren Borbart glorifying rifles to celebrate the birth of our peacemaker, Jesus. So let's go to number two. How might our holy texts inform the issues of today? One of the most powerful things that I've come to understand is that Jesus and God are inherently intersectional. The Bible doesn't use the term intersectionality the term given to us by Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw, but the concept of overlapping injustices was present in ancient societies as are examples of how Jesus and God responded. In their book, Introduction to Intersectional Theology, Grace G. Soon Kim and Susan M. Shaw argue 
that we must embrace intersectionality as a theological method to create new ways of understanding that will not only liberate the subordinate, but who will also liberate the dominant, the colonizer, the privileged, as we all join together to seek to build an equitable and just world that values and affirms people across differences of race, ethnicity, gender, sexual identity, national origin, ability, age, religion, or socioeconomic class. People who claim to love God, they continue, must embrace the gospel's insistence on liberation and justice. Intersectionality adds that God's biases towards justice encompasses all the differences and oppressions simultaneously. I'm going to say that again. Intersectionality adds that God's biases towards justice encompasses all the differences and oppressions simultaneously. That's a lot of words, but let me give you one of the best examples of the intersectional Jesus. And that's in the story with the woman at the well in the Gospel of John. Samaritan women were of mixed ethnicity. Jews considered them foreigners and didn't engage with them. Plus, she's a woman. Plus, she had five husbands. But Jesus sees all of that and because of all of that, reaches out across ethnicity, across gender, across class and religion, and engages her in highly intellectual religious conversation. We see God's intersectionality in the story of Hagar, in the woman with the alabaster jar, teaching the disciples to fish. We could go on and on. But the point is this, if we follow an intersectional Jesus, our faith must inform our politics and social views intersectionally as well. When I was at SCOTUS, several young white boys kept thrusting microphones in my face, and they only wanted to know one thing, when does life begin? To which, after several looks, I replied, you're asking the wrong question. God approaches this conversation just like she does everything else, considering everything, all the intersections, what's happening before and right now and after and all around, who's at the center of this conversation that shouldn't be, where does this conversation fall within my ultimate insistence on liberation and justice? And friends, when we do that, we can't not hear that the U.S. is the only industrialized nation in the world where maternal mortality is rising, and that the U.S. ranks 33rd out of 36 in infant mortality. We can't not see that infant and maternal mortality among blacks and Latinx people are more than twice the national average, and that economically poor people will suffer the most when Roe is overturned. We can't not see that long before SB 8 was up for discussion, black infants in Texas were twice as likely as white infants to die before their first birthday, and that the national black maternal mortality rate is 44 deaths per 100,000 compared to only 17 to white deaths. We can't not see that SB 8 will compound the long-term damage of racism in the Texas healthcare system, and I'm only talking about Texas. This is how systemic racism works.
We can't be anti-choice and profess to be Christian. If we do, we are admitting that to being Christian is to continue the legacy of white supremacy and systemic racism. We can't glorify guns and support the NRA and profess to be Christians. If we do, we are admitting that to be Christian is to be puppets to the patriarchy. Intersectional theology is a destabilizing theology, and when applied, it's going to shake a lot of things up. And for starters, we need to develop critical self-understandings of our own intersectional identities. What privileges, advantages, social locations do I bring to this conversation? And we need to ask, who's missing here that needs to be here? And finally, where do we go from here? Here's what I love about the passage today. Did you notice what happened between verses 17 and 19? Probably not, because we've done a lot of things since then. But did you catch how the point of view changed from third to first person? In verse 17, the Lord your God is in your midst. God will rejoice over you with gladness. God will renew you in her love. And then 18, I will remove disaster from you. I will deal with your oppressors. I will save the lame. What is going on here? Did Zephaniah just decide to start quoting God verbatim? Possibly. Did God just arrive in the text? That's interesting. But I propose that the text is actually a reminder that the birth of Jesus isn't a singular moment where change can happen. In fact, it's the opposite. God is all up in the mix now because we are God and God is us. Woo! Zephaniah realizes here that he can speak on behalf of God, on behalf of love and justice, and all the intersections where the enfleshed body of God lives. And so can we. We've got a lot of speaking to do, don't we? because there have been forces, and dare I say evil forces, in coordination, speaking and organizing for decades, professing a God that I do not know. When we understand Jesus as inherently intersectional, our politics will be so informed. An intersectional faith ends the filibuster, liberates abortion, and passes massive gun reform. An intersectional faith flows from the multi-ethnic person of Jesus who is enfleshed at Christmas time. Now this stuff is heavy, you all, and it's scary at times. We need to name that too. Have any of you found yourself paralyzed or deeply depressed this week, any week? This is heavy and scary stuff. Some of you all have heard that I've had the recent honor of my life to develop a friendship with feminist scholar Bell Hooks. I'm planning on taking a trip to go see her again soon, and this week I had a nightmare. I dreamed that a young white boy with a large rifle was literally standing in my way, blocking me from getting on the plane blocking me from sitting at the feet of one who for decades has looked the, let's say it again, imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy in the eye with radical imagination and love and pressed on anyway. I've been sitting with the heaviness of that dream. 
But you know what? I got through it. I got through him who embodies so much of what is wrong in our country. And I can't remember exactly how. I know, that's what you wanted to hear. That's what I want to be able to know and to hand you in a playbook also, but I can't. But here's what I do remember. I wasn't alone when I did it. You were there, Jackie, and you all were there, and you all online were there, and God was there. And so I'm reminded when abolitionist Miriam Kaba is asked, how are we going to protect ourselves without police? When she's asked any question that seems impossible, she always answers, I don't know, but we're going to figure it out together. Where do we go from here? I don't know exactly, but I know that we go together. And I know that we go with God. I know that God has never left us. And sometimes God reminds us of that, right? Like maybe through a rainbow that just happens to appear on the exact spot exactly a year after our church burns down. Like today, El Dia de Nuestra Señora de Guadalupe, when a beautiful black Madonna appears to an indigenous boy in Spain. God is in our midst. And we're going to figure this out. We are going to resist the imperialist, white supremacist, capitalist patriarchy because God insists on it. We will speak on behalf of that God. We will organize to fulfill her dreams. When someone asks us, how are you a Christian? How are you a person of faith and pro-abortion? We are going to say, how much time do you have? When someone asks you, what is wrong with posing with rifles to celebrate Christmas? We're going to say, how much time do you have? We are going to see God in our midst because God is here, and we're going to love each other along the way. Amen.